Chapter 12 of Mark's gospel is often called the confrontation chapter. The confrontation chapter. You see, one by one, religious leaders openly challenge Jesus on various topics. Until one by one, Jesus easily and brilliantly answers their objections. I think of Jesus kind of like Neo at the end of the first Matrix, you know, where he's like just one-handed, just like <laughs> dealing with all their attacks and like turning them back against themselves. So that's what Jesus is doing. The, the whole first three, really three-fourths of the chapter is he's just taking on all comers. So religious people are openly challenging him on various things. And one by one, he's just easily and brilliantly answering their uh, objections uh, until verse 34 says, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And so Jesus has been playing defense for this entire chapter. He's been playing defense. But now that there's no one left who's willing to challenge him, Jesus decides to go on offense. He decides to present his own argument. And that brings us to our text today. Today we are in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 37. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. If you have your Bible with you, you could turn there, but if you don't, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The Lord's crowd listened to him with delight. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words from your son. And we, along with these crowds, we listen with delight to him. For he is our king. He is our leader. He is our light in the darkest of places. And so we ask you, Father, give us your Holy Spirit today and lead us, lead us to Jesus. And let his words speak profoundly to our hearts today. And it is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so here Jesus presents two messages. So he's giving his argument, and he gives two messages. Number one in your outline is Jesus' message to culture. Jesus speaks to culture here. So point number one is Jesus' message to culture. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. So verse 35 is Mark's way of tying this last section into everything else we've read in Mark chapter 12. And throughout the chapter, Jesus has been in the temple courts addressing various controversies. So Mark here is inviting us to survey everything Jesus has just said, to survey the whole chapter What's interesting is that though the topics Jesus addresses seem different, when you look at the chapter as a whole, at all of the confrontations together, 
you see one overarching theme from Jesus. The famous theologian John Stott says that the overarching theme in Mark chapter 12 is Jesus attacking both poles of human thought. Jesus attacks both poles of human thought. What do I mean? Well, on one hand, Jesus opposes the Sadducees, which today would be called the secular liberals, secular liberals, because they don't believe in the supernatural. So Jesus attacks the Sadducees. But on the other hand, Jesus opposes the Pharisees, who today we would call religious conservatives, because uh, though the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural, the Pharisees didn't believe in grace. They didn't believe in grace. They were all about religious rule-keeping. Religious rule-keeping. And so John Stott says this, quote, These two poles of thought show up in most cultures throughout history. So Democrats and Republicans, this isn't new. <laughs> this isn't new to America, okay? John Stott goes on to say, uh, These cultures... Have been exist in ex- these two poles have been in existence since the very beginning of human thought. You have personal choice versus moral absolutes. You have individual rights versus tradition and family. You have love versus law. End quote. So, humanity has always had these two different poles of thought, and Jesus. John Stott points out, is against both. He is against both. He doesn't fit in either category. Now, it's fascinating, though, that throughout time, both sides have tried to claim Jesus for their own. Both sides have tried desperately to claim Jesus as their own. Each try to show how Jesus is on their side. But Jesus refuses to take sides. He refuses. Jesus has not come to take sides. He's come to take over. Jesus does not have an individualistic, create-your-own-reality philosophy. And neither does he have a moralistic, save-yourself-through-moral-performance philosophy. He has neither. So what is Jesus about then? If he doesn't fit into our categories... What's his category? What's he about? What is Christianity? Christianity is the cross. That's what it is. You see, on the cross, we see the absolute moral justice of God being fulfilled completely by Jesus Christ on our behalf by sheer grace. By sheer grace. This cross-centered worldview is totally unique in the history of the world. On one hand, it does embrace moral absolutes. It does. But it says that there's only one person who could actually be moral. It's not you. And it's not me. So it embraces moral absolutes, but it says there's only one person who is absolutely moral. On the other hand, it totally embraces the weak and the marginalized. But it does so on the basis of the Imago Dei. 
on the fact that every human is created in the image of God. And therefore, every human is of such value and worth that God himself died to save them. That is how valuable you are and how valuable, how valuable everyone is. So the Christian, therefore, views everything, everything through the lens of the cross. Everything through the lens of the cross. The cross is not only the pinnacle of history, it's the entire point of history. It's the whole point. It's the reason for creation. It's the reason for Adam and Eve. It's the reason for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The cross is the point. It's the whole point. The Father did all of this. Everything to get Jesus to the cross. The cross shows us the impossibly high moral standards of God. And it also shows us the impossibly deep love of God. It shows us both. Martin Luther, Martin Luther differentiated between Jesus' view and the views of the world and other religions, saying that essentially all worldly views are the same. They're all the same. So atheism, agnosticism, Democrat, Republican, every religion, they're, they're essentially at the bottom all the same. They're all the same. And they have what Martin Luther called a theology of glory. A theology of glory. All of them operate under that heading. A theology of glory. Now, what is the theology of glory? This is a worldview that sees everything as a way for people to increase their own glory, their own status. It's all about climbing the ladder, okay? Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, Buddhist, Islamic, at the core, it's all the same. It's all about climbing the ladder. Now, they will tell you some different ways to climb, they might have different names for the rungs of the ladder, okay? Islam's got different names for the rungs than Buddhism has. But it's all the same. It's all about the same thing. You know, other religions, they give you a, a lengthy list of moral hoops for you to jump through. And the person who does them the best, who gets the highest on the ladder, receives the most glory. See? It's a theology of glory. Now, the liberal person gets glory by creating their own morality, their own morality and their own reality. The conservative gets glory through moral conformity and holding to tradition. But in essence, they're all doing the same thing. It's the same thing. They're trying to get to the top. They're trying to get to the top, so to speak. They're just using different ways to do it. They're all operating under a theology of glory. But, in stark contrast, the Christian operates under a theology of the cross. So on one hand, we have a theology of glory. On the other hand, we have what Martin Luther calls a theology of the cross. 
What's a theology of the cross? Well, rather than trying so hard to climb up the ladder, the Christian climbs down the ladder. Down and down and down and down. They're going in the opposite direction of everyone else. They see that true glory is not found at the top, it's found at the bottom. They see that the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus tells us that glory is actually found at the foot of the cross. So according to Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul, the theologian of the cross preaches what seems foolish to the world. It's goofy, it's stupid, it's irrational, it makes no sense. These are not my words, these are Paul's words. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. What is the foolishness that Christians preach? Three things that are just utter goofiness. Number one, that humans can in no way earn righteousness. In no way, shape, or form can you earn righteousness not even a teeny, tiny, little bit. That's foolishness number one in the theology of the cross. Number two, second foolish thing that we preach is that humans cannot add to or increase the righteousness of the cross. So we cannot add to the righteousness of Jesus. To even think that you can is insulting to the cross and what Jesus has done. Foolishness number one is humans can't earn righteousness, not even a teeny tiny bit. Number two, humans cannot add to Jesus' righteousness at the cross. And number three, the, the foolish thing that we preach is any righteousness given to humanity comes from the outside. It comes from outside of us, not from the inside of us. This is what Martin Luther coined extranos, extranos. This is Latin for outside of us. The only righteousness we have is extra nos, outside of ourselves. In other words, when it comes to God, humans not only can't get to the top of the ladder, they can't even make it up the first rung of the ladder. Not through church attendance, not through good behavior, not through obeying the commandments, nothing. Not by putting a whole bunch of money in the plate. Nothing. It all counts for nothing. That's the foolishness that we preach. Whereas the Old Testament prophet said so eloquently that our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's filthy rags. We have nothing to offer our God. And so, a theologian of the cross recognizes this. And recognizes that he is in perpetual, continual need of grace. Every second of every day. And the theologian of the cross knows that God freely supplies this grace that he so desperately needs. Through faith and faith alone. 
through faith and faith alone. So, Jesus' message to culture is this. My kingdom is completely upside down from yours. It's completely upside down. It is the polar opposite. And Jesus says, so while you're busy scrambling to sit at the head of culture's table, I'll be sitting at the end of the table, patiently waiting for you to join me. While everyone else is scrambling to get at the head of the table, I'll be at the end, patiently waiting for you. Now, you have homework this week, class. If you'd like to read a great teaching from Jesus himself about the theology of the cross, there are, there are many, uh, but I like this one a lot. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to read more about Jesus' teaching on the theology of the cross, about sitting at the end of the table, go read Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. That's your homework. Luke 14, 7 through 14, lest you take my word for it. Jesus teaches explicitly about the theology of the cross there. Luke 14, 7 through 14. Okay, so that's Jesus' message to culture. No matter what culture it is, any time in history or any place in the world, Jesus' is, is completely the opposite. It's completely the opposite. All others are identical. They're all trying to climb the ladder. Okay, that's his message to culture. Number two in your outline is Jesus' message to doubters. Jesus' message to those who doubt. Doubters. So in this text, in our story today, Jesus is surrounded by doubters. That's who he's talking to. Okay? These are people who don't really believe in him. They might be interested in him. You know, they might be fascinated by him. But they don't believe in him. They're there just to check him out. But they have plenty of questions and plenty of doubts. Okay? And so here Jesus puts forth his argument to the doubter to convince them that what he says is true. He gives a, an argument to doubters. So what is his argument? It's awesome. Let's look at it. Let's look at it together. Verses 35 through 37. Here is Jesus' argument. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Delight. Okay, so what's the argument? First, Jesus starts with the premise that his original audience almost universally believed. I'd like to say that 100% of his audience believed it, but 100% is probably a little too strong. 98% of his original audience believed this premise. What is that premise? It is the premise that one day God was going to send a great deliverer, a Christos, a Messiah, to put everything right in Israel. And this Messiah would be a descendant of David. Okay? That's the premise everybody believed. Almost everyone believed in Israel. God would send a redeemer, a deliverer, through David's line. 
And so he would be David's son, as it were. He'd be David's son. So Jesus says, if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? Which is where Jesus quotes from in this text. Jesus says, if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? That psalm is a psalm of David. David himself wrote it. And in the song, David talks about the Messiah and all the great things he will do. But interestingly, in the psalm, David calls the Messiah, my Lord. My Lord. Now, what makes that so interesting and why the crowds listen with such delight at Jesus' teaching is they know exactly what's going on here and what Jesus is saying. You see, in this culture... You would never call your descendant, your child or grandchild or great-grandchild, you would never call them my Lord. It would be very disrespectful. You would not do that. It would be the other way around. Your descendant would call you my Lord, lowercase l. But they would be the ones calling you Lord. You would call them son or daughter. That's how it worked. That was the culture. That's what you did. To show respect for your elders, you always called them Lord. And then the elders called their descendants sons or daughters. So, Jesus' question is this. Why then did David call his descendant my Lord? Why? I admit that this argument is very tailored toward Jesus' original audience, first century Jews. I get that. And yet, I think it's very, very important for you and me too. Very important. I think we actually learn quite a bit from this argument. After all, all of us have doubts to some degree or another. If you think I stand behind this pulpit without any doubts at all, you are wrong. You're wrong. I need to hear this argument from Jesus as much as you do. And boy, what an argument it is. Let's dive a little deeper into it. So how could David's descendant also be David's Lord with a capital L? With a capital L. How could that be? There's only one possible answer. The Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. Jesus is saying to his original audience, you guys think the Messiah is just going to be human, a great man, a great leader. A human figure who's going to come bring political liberation to Israel. But if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? You see, all of Israel, yes, we're waiting for a Messiah, but not a divine Messiah. Not a divine one. They thought he would be like David. A great leader. A great political figure. A great warrior but not divine. And so Jesus says, how then do you explain Psalm 110? 
you can't explain it unless the Messiah is a human figure and a divine figure. The Messiah must be David's son and God's son. He must be. And he won't be coming to put down the political enemies of Israel. He'll be coming to put down the ultimate enemies of the human race, sin, death, and hell. Those are the enemies this Messiah is after. So Jesus is telling his original audience, you haven't been reading your Bibles well. You've anticipated the wrong Messiah, the wrong one. But Jesus is saying the same thing to modern doubters. He's saying to us, you haven't been reading your Bibles well either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, the Jews demand miracles. The Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that every culture on earth has its own way of discovering and proving the truth. Every culture has its own way of doing that. You see, in his day, the Jews were pragmatists. They were pragmatists. The Jews said, show me a miracle and I'll believe. Show me a supernatural act of power and I'll believe. But the Greeks in Jesus' day were very different. In Paul's day, they were rationalistic. The Greeks would say, give me a watertight argument. Give me a watertight argument and then I'll believe. Give me a logical proof and I'll believe you. But when Jesus had an opportunity to prove his message, he gave neither. He gave neither. He doesn't give us anything that will fit in our paradigms. He gives us something to explode our paradigms. Now, this isn't to say Jesus doesn't ever use reason. He does. He's extremely rational. And this isn't to say that Jesus doesn't do miracles. He does plenty. But he knows that if you really want to believe in Christianity, if you really want to believe in him, then you need something more. You need something else. Miracles won't cut it, and neither will watertight arguments. And so Jesus gives us what we really need. Him. He gives us himself. He is the argument that he gives. Many of you know that I was a former atheist, a a very hardened atheist. But I came to a point in my life where I I wanted to seek out information about the world's religions. I started to doubt my own doubts. Okay, as a skeptic, I became skeptical of my skepticism. Okay, and so I went on a search. I went on a search. I read the Quran. I read uh, Buddhist teachings. I read all kinds of different books and different religions. And 
As far as Christianity goes, I researched all the arguments. Okay? I bought all the philosophical books and the historical books. I bought them all. And I read them. I looked at the evidence for the resurrection. I looked at the cosmological argument. I looked at the teleological argument. I looked at the ontological argument, etc., etc. And those were pretty helpful. They were. They were pretty helpful. But you know what sealed the deal for me? What made tears flood down this hardened atheist's face and commit the rest of my life to Jesus and his ministry? You know what sealed the deal for me? Jesus. Jesus is who sealed the deal for me. It was the person of Jesus Christ that convinced me Christianity is true. He was the most compelling, most frightening, most brilliant character I have ever seen in my life. Nothing in fiction or in nonfiction comes close to Jesus. They don't come remotely close to Jesus. If you had 10 million years to sit down with a pen and a journal, you could never, never invent a character like Jesus. Never. You can never do it. One historian says it would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. It would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. You couldn't do it in 10 million years. You see, God has not provided a watertight argument. He's provided a watertight person. A watertight person. A person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. Now, I talk with atheists a lot. As a former atheist, I have, uh, I have a heart for skeptics. And I would say that 99% of them, you know, they, they could just rattle off all their problems with Christianity. With belief in general. They'll just rattle them off. But you know what almost all of them leave out? Jesus. <laughs> they don't have a problem with Jesus. It's something else that they have the problem with. It's, uh, well, you know, I, I can't deal with the, you know, the, the homosexual debate. I can't deal with that. Or I can't deal with the, you know, it just seems like science points to this world being pointless and this universe having no creator. You know, it's, they always point to things like that. Or they point to all the moral rules that are so rigid and, and so difficult to obey. They point to things like that, but nobody ever points to Jesus. No atheist ever says, oh, it was that Jesus. It was that Jesus that I just couldn't deal with. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Why? Because he's the most amazing person. The most watertight person has ever existed. One Christian scholar who used to be an atheist, he puts it like this. He says, quote, I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. <laughs> I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. He says, the Jesus of the Bible is full of surprises, but they all are the surprises of perfection. He is tender without being weak. 
strong without being coarse, lowly without being surveilled. He has conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Phariseeism, and passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. And no one has ever been able to propose something that Jesus ought to have done or said. End quote. So Jesus is saying to doubters today, to you and me, he's saying, read your Bibles well. Read them well. He says, don't read into it what you want it to say about me. Because you'll want to. <laughs> you'll want to. You'll want to make him fit into your liberal category. You'll want to make him fit into your conservative category. Or whatever category you have, you'll want to make him fit in there. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't read into it what you want it to say about me. Read out of it what it actually says about me. And if you'll do that, you'll see that I'm not just David's son. I'm God's son. I'm not just David's son. I'm David's Lord, capital L. Now, although everything about Jesus is spectacular, everything about him is, there's one thing that takes the cake. One thing that takes the cake. There's one place where you'll find the culmination of everything Jesus is. You see, David wrote about the Messiah in another psalm. Psalm 22. And psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night, but I find no rest. You want to know who Jesus really is? Jesus came to this earth as both God's son and David's son for the sole purpose of suffering and dying in your place for your sins and for mine. He came to bear the punishment you and I deserve. He came to be forsaken by God so that you never will be. He came to cry out in anguish so that you can smile and laugh in complete fulfillment and peace with God. He didn't get an answer to his prayer so that you would always get an answer to yours. He found no rest so that you could find it forever forever. That is who Jesus is. He willingly gave his life for his enemies, for you and for me. He is our great substitute, 
our great deliverer, delivering us not from the trials of this world, but from the wrath of God for sin. And so here at Gospel Life Church, we don't preach miracles. We don't preach philosophy. We don't preach to-do lists. We don't preach morals. We don't preach religious rule-keeping. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That is what we preach. Christ and Him crucified. We don't give you ways to climb the ladder here at Gospel Life. No, we tell you about the time that Jesus climbed down the ladder. Since you couldn't get up the first rung to get to him, he came all the way down from heaven to a lowly manger in Bethlehem to pull you up, put you on his shoulders, and he himself climbed the ladder and bring you home. That's what we preach at Gospel Life. Christ and Him crucified for you. And so if you're not a Christian here today, look to the cross. Look to the cross and see Jesus hanging where you should have hung and receive His free gift of salvation. Receive His mercy and forgiveness for your sins. And if you're a Christian here today, do the same thing. <laughs> do the same thing. We don't move on from the cross, folks. Ever. Ever, never, never, never. You know what we'll be talking about 10 million years from now? The cross is what we'll be talking about. It's what all of heaven right now as we are gathered here, is singing about. All of heaven is right now singing together. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's what they're singing. And that's what they'll always sing. No, we don't move on from the cross. We make our home there. We are theologians of the cross. We tie a rope around our waist and the other end of the rope around the foot of the cross so that we'll never leave. Be a theologian of the cross today. That is where all doubts are silenced. You got doubts today? Join the club. Don't run to the teleological argument. Don't run to the ontological argument. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. That is where true everlasting glory is found. And where all doubts are silenced. Let's pray together.